All right, so by way of introduction uh, for this message that I've entitled All's Well That Ends Well, which um, I'd always heard the saying, I looked it up, it's actually a Shakespeare play. Um, I hadn't ever realized that, and I'll leave it to you and Google, hopefully after service, to see what that play is about. I just want to use the title, All's Well That Ends Well, and I want to, by way of introduction, remind you of a couple of verses. And so the first verse I want to share with you is Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, and this is what the Lord is saying about himself. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, the Lord says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Well, there's a whole sermon in those two verses, but, but what basically the Lord is saying here is I'm the only God there is. There is no other God. And also, I say what's going to happen at the end from the beginning. I, I, I do that and I'm going to do whatever it is my pleasure to do. Whatever I say I'm going to do, I'm going to do. So he's the only God. He calls the things from the beginning. He calls the end from the beginning, and he's able to accomplish whatever he sets his mind to. So it's really important for us to settle our hearts right away because that ties into this message of all's well that ends well. If, if God is good, he's the only God. He, call, he says that things are going to go well in the end for believers, and he says, I can get it done. Then we can take a breath, and we can say, okay, well, I can trust him. He said he's going to do this thing, and then he's going to do it. Now, what is that end that he has set for us? I want to read one verse along these lines. It's from Revelation 21, verse 4, speaking about the new heavens and the new, new earth. And this is what we read, familiar verse, Revelation 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And so that's the end that God has planned for believers. And in fact, that's the end he has for everyone. He wants everyone to become a believer so they might experience that wonderful end. And, and so that's really where we're heading to. Because we, we, here we are, we realize these things about God. We realize this good end that he has. We realize that all's well that ends well. But we also realize I'm not there yet. So my hope today for you and for me is that we would draw encouragement from the scriptures to propel us to keep running, to keep rowing, to keep fighting until that day. Because that's what's coming for us. That's the hope that we have. But it's, it's a hope that, that it says in the scriptures, you know, hope that sees or hope that experiences doesn't keep on hoping, right? So it's still in the future, so we need that future settled in our hearts, settled in, my mind, in our minds saying, okay, all's well that ends well, and that hope will give me the courage to keep going. Have you, Satan's greatest thing is Satan's a discourager. And if you, have you ever taken that word apart, discourage? It means to take courage away. And what do we need to keep fighting? What do we need to keep rowing? What do we need to keep running? We need courage. And so w this message, I'm hoping, will be part of what God uses to encourage you to keep working, keep running, keep fighting today. And then get up tomorrow, and then just take that day. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So let's take care of today and see what happens. All right, let's go. The, for the believer, all will end well, no matter how things look today. So let's jump into Psalm 108. So Psalm 108, perhaps I should turn there. 
Uh, Psalm 108, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 to kind of get going. And so this is, we see a song, a psalm of David. And it really has kind of components or pieces from different psalms um, that, that David has put together in this one. So verses 1 through 6, he says, Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp, I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand, and hear me. So really, what, what David is, is kind of speaking about here at the end, he's talking about wanting to be delivered out of the situation he's in, the trouble that he's in. But, but the main focus is him wanting to glorify God. David wants God to be glorified. And I want you to take a moment, just think right now where you are, you know, get, get your mind off of roses for just a moment, and, and think about how wonderful the world would be if, if every single person made it their job to glorify God. If that was what everybody did, crime statistics would be zero. <laughs> we wouldn't have to lock our doors. We could go walking in any part of any city at any time of night. It would be wonderful if everyone in the world glorified God. And we have good news that the day is coming, right? We have the millennial kingdom to look forward to. We have the new heaven and new earth where only righteousness will dwell, all of those things. But what happens is we kind of have this dream world where everyone glorifies God, and then we realize, unfortunately, there is very little prospect of that happening. In fact, we read in the scriptures that things will get worse and worse. Jesus says things like, when, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And so we're kind of brought crashing back down to earth because the reality is we can't make anyone else worship the Lord. We can't make anyone else praise the Lord. We can encourage people to, we can set the example for it, but we can't make them. And so, but here, here's what we can do. So instead of focusing on all the can'ts, let's focus on the can. What is it we can do? This is what we can do. We can choose to worship the Lord ourselves. We can choose to glorify the Lord ourselves. We can choose and say, you know what, no matter what's going on around me, I'm just going to choose to worship the Lord. And as I was thinking about this, this reminded me of something Joshua said near the end of his public ministry. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. I want to read it for you. It's very familiar. If you run down to Mardell tomorrow, I'm sure you can find some kind of piece of art with this verse on there. Joshua 24, 15. Don't let the familiarity of it take away its power. This is what Joshua said before the nation of Israel. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I love that. I love the power, the clarity that Joshua at the end of his ministry is basically saying this. You guys got to choose. If it seems like a bad thing to you, if it seems like an evil thing to you to choose God, he says, well, then serve the gods back on the other side of the river. Serve the gods that they used to serve there. Or you know what? You can look around in this land of Canaan that we're in. Why don't you find a God to serve there? I, I love that Joshua doesn't soften this. He doesn't say, well, attend and pretend. You know, just, just kind of kind of do that thing or just fake it until you make it. Or No, he says, you need to make a choice. Are you going to serve God or not? 
Because if it seems bad to you to serve God, well, well then you, you go find another God. But he says, that's not what I'm going to do. He says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this is what Joshua is really saying. He says, I'm going to set the direction for my household by my actions. Did you know that even in Joshua's house, Joshua couldn't make his family believe? Joshua couldn't make his family glorify God. You know, even if he compelled them through force, it wouldn't be real. So what Joshua is doing here is he's saying, I'm going to make that choice. And, and it's, it's been well said, it's been, I've been reminded of this recently, that the best thing that we can do for our children is to set the standard. It is to say, I'm going to serve God. You have a choice. God doesn't have any grandchildren, right? God only has children, you, you, can't be, you can't believe because I believe. You've got to make that choice yourself. So what we can do in whatever sphere of influence we are, it's at school or it's at work, is just to say, I don't know about all this mess around me, but I'm going to choose to serve the Lord. I'm going to choose to glorify the Lord. I'm going to choose that thing. And there's great power in there. But please, 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 don't look at your influence like, like some kind of spiritual baseball card. You know, what are my stats? I wonder what's happening. I wonder how it's, no, no, that's, it's not for you to decide. It's not for you to determine your influence. It's for you and I to determine as believers, I'm gonna choose to glorify God. I'm gonna choose to praise him. I'm gonna leave the results to him. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter four, he basically said, I don't care that you guys judge me, Corinthians. I, I, don't, I don't care about that because the, the reality is I don't even judge myself. God's the judge. And he's going to reveal on that day what impact, what influence. And I'll tell you this, the Apostle Paul could not have imagined the influence he's had on humanity. When, when he was going through it, when he was having his difficulties, when he was like in prison, there's no way in, that, that the Apostle Paul could have thought, you know what, I'm going to positively influence billions of people in human history. There's no way he could know that. And so, so it is for you and I. I'm not saying you're going to be the next Apostle Paul. Please don't go home today and start writing some scripture. Yeah, 67 books has a nice ring to it. No, that's not, that's, that's not what we want. But what I am saying is you and I are not good judges of our influence, of the impact we're making. But here's one thing we know we can do. We can glorify God. We, we can worship God and, and set that standard for others. All right, let's move on to verses 7 through 13 now. It says, God has spoken in his holiness I will rejoice, I will divide Shechem, I will measure and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is also a helmet for my head, Judah is my lawgiver, Moab is my washpot, over Edom I will cast my shoe, over Philistia I will triumph. So it's really talking about how God would, you know, have uh, pronounced judgment on these nations, he would, he would take over these nations, that, that he would um, defeat these enemies. And then David continues, who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? And then here's where David gets a little chippy with the Lord. He says, is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? And so he's upset because, you know, they'd had defeats, it seems. And he's like, God hadn't gone with us. And, you know, where are you? We need you, kind of this idea. And then he says in verses 12 and 13, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. It's very important. And so the, here's the big idea of what David is communicating in verses 13 through, I'm sorry, 7 through 13. If God fights for us, we will win. If God fights for us, we will win. If God does not fight for us, we will lose. <laughs> 
Simple. If God fights for us, we'll win. If God doesn't fight for us, we will lose. Okay, well, how do we get God to fight for us? We get on God's side. That, that's, so you want, you want victory, you want ultimate final victory in whatever it is you're doing, get on God's side. Get, get, get going with what God's doing. Don't expect God to get on your or my side if we're not walking in obedience. You know, don't just kind of do life and say, God bless this mess. No, instead say, how does God want things done? I want to do that and God will give me the victory. Did you know that Stephen, the first martyr of the church, he, God gave him the victory. It doesn't look like a victory from human standpoint, right? He was stoned to death by his enemies, yet it says that he says he saw Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, welcoming him into his presence. We still talk about Stephen today because he was on God's side. He did what God wanted him to do, and though even though he was killed by his persecutors, he won. He had the victory. So we have to remind ourselves that what it looks like to be victorious in God's eyes is not necessarily what it looks like to be victorious in the world's eyes. To be victorious in the world's eyes is you have to win and you hold the Super Bowl trophy or you do these things. To be victorious in the Lord's eyes may look like spending your entire life serving. Nobody giving, patting you on the back, nobody doing those things, but that's the victory. Now, kind of thinking about, about God fighting for us, I, I want to remind you of what David said to Goliath. David, the teenager, the youngest in his family, said this to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. He says to this giant, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Now, we're so familiar with David and Goliath, and it's just, it's, it's, I don't know, you know, you probably, if you've been in children's church as a kid, you've listened to it, you know, 75 times. You know, it's, it's, it's an often thing, and we're familiar with it, and we talk about sporting events, and David and Goliath, we forget this thing. From a human perspective, David had no business beating Goliath. From, how many times in human history has a really small person gone up a really big person, and the small person has ended up dead? I imagine many, 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 many times in human history. But here we have David goes up against Goliath and takes him down because David is so awesome and amazing. No, because God saw that David was a man after his own heart and he gave David the victory. I say, well, what does that have to do with you and I? Well, you and I are in a battle. And so I want you to, if you would, turn to the New Testament to Ephesians chapter six because we want to talk about this battle. Ephesians 6, and and reminding ourselves that if we're going to win this battle, if we're going to be victorious in what God has called us to, that specific battle that he's called us to fight, that we have to be on the Lord's side. Well, the good news is any good commander who sends his troops into battle is going to equip them for the battle. He's going to give them what they need to fight that. So if God expects you and I to fight a battle... Could you imagine if God just pats us on the back and said, God bless you, or me bless you, and sends you off, right? No, that's not not what he does. He equips us, okay? And so here's where it is. Ephesians chapter 6, many of you maybe have memorized this, but I want to look at verses 10 through 20, reminding ourselves that we do not fight in our own strength. We do not fight in our own power. We don't fight in our own intellectual abilities and and all these things. We fight in the power and the, the equipment God provides. So Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, says, Finally, my brethren, be strong, notice, in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
He doesn't say, hey, get out to the gym and really start working hard and make sure you can run a, you know, a five-minute mile. And No, no, he says this, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So I want you to notice so often here he's about standing. Okay, about standing strong, about standing up, about standing firm against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles, it means kind of trickery, deceptions of the devil. That's how the devil works. He's a deceiver. It says, notice, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Because if it were merely flesh and blood, then, then it would be about working out. It would be about getting stronger physically. But that's not the key. But, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, this is speaking about demonic powers that are influencing the, the world system, that are influencing people behind the scenes, that are deceiving people, that are leading people astray. That's who we're fighting against. And so we need spiritual armor to fight a spiritual battle. Notice, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to do what? To withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore. So what God wants from us is to stand. He, he wants us to stand. He, he, he wants us to, to, to withstand, to stand, to stand therefore, to stand against the wiles of the evil devil. He, says, he doesn't say, you know, I, I just need you to be a real superstar. I, I just need you to be something super awesome. I need you to make the winning catch in the Super Bowl. I, he doesn't say any of that. He says, here's what I need from you. Here's what I want from you. I just want you to stand. In the midst of a world gone mad, in the midst, as John says, that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one, would you just stand up? And even, you don't have to stand up in your own power. I'm going to give you all things that pertain to life and godliness. I'm going to give you everything you need to stand, but would you stand? That's what he's calling us to. And the reason why we're experiencing so much in our world is so many professing Christians refuse to stand. They've bowed the knee. They bowed the knee to Baal. They, they've said, oh, it's okay, and this thing, and that thing, and the other thing. And instead of just saying, you know what? I'm just going to stand. I'm going to stand in the truth. And so verse 14, stand therefore, notice, having girded your waist with truth. Okay, so we need to be people. So in the ancient world, you'd have, you know, this, this long outer garment, and when you were about to fight, when you're about to go into battle, you've got to kind of gather up this garment. You've got to kind of bunch it up so it's not in the way of your feet, and you have this belt to cinch it all up. So this idea is we need to be people who are immersed in the truth, who know the truth, who know how the, the, the world works, who know the, the word of God. We study it day and night, and so what happens, that keeps everything together, so many Christians, what happens is we don't spend time learning the truth, so we're really sloppy in our thinking. We don't really understand how things fit together. We don't understand why the things are. So, so we need to be, have our waist with truth and then having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You know that, you know, you see, and, and if you watch like detective shows like, like I, I like to watch, you know, they go and they're going to storm a house and they, they put on the vest. Right, they put on the bulletproof vest because there's all kinds of organs right here that need to be protected. And so we have this breastplate of righteousness in the, in the ancient days. It was a, you know, a metal piece here. We can be strong in our hearts if we realize this righteousness. Well, whose righteousness is this? This is not our righteousness. Remember, all this spiritual uh, armor has been given to us by God. So this breastplate of righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. That we can be stout-hearted, we can be strong-hearted because we're not going into this saying, well, I really had my devotional today and I had a great time of prayer and I'm pretty awesome but we're going in saying, Christ is righteous. 
it's his righteousness. that. So I'm going to go into this battle, and if I get killed, that's okay, because I'm going to go to be absent from the body. It's to be present with the Lord. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to be strong-hearted because I'm not covered with my righteousness that is filthy rags, but I'm covered with his righteousness. And so that's how I'm going to go, and that's how my heart's going to be strong, because of him. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In the ancient world, you know, they, they had their dogs out. They were wearing sandals all the time. And so they had those sandals, but they would have sandals that were like cleats. They would have little spikes in it so they could stand strong. So as, as we go out in preparation, verse 15, it means that we're people who are spreading the gospel. We're c- helping people to be reconciled to God. We're giving man the consolation that there's a God who made them and loves them. We can do that. We can stand firm in that. That, remi- that, that reminds us we need to know the gospel. We need to understand the gospel. We always got to come back to the gospel and say this is the truth, that that everyone's a sinner, that they're lost without Christ, but Jesus Christ came and died for them that if they would believe in him, they would be saved. We can stand firm in that. That's the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith. And so this is really speaking of that large shield that large shield that soldiers would have as they're attacking someone and there's these flaming arrows come in and it protects them and they, la- they put all those shields together, it's called a phalanx, and then they would be able to repel those fiery darts. So what is that shield? It's a shield of faith. Well, well how, do, how do we kind of quote unquote get more faith? How do we grow in faith? Well, Paul tells us in Romans, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. As you and I are just like, I'm kind of running low on faith. And what happens is we're not seeing God accurately. The world is crowding him out. So it's like, well, how can I grow in faith? Well, you grow in faith by increasing your vision of God by coming to the word of God. Let's get back into the word of God. Study the word of God. Serve the word of God. Believe the word of God. And then what happened is that, sh- that shield will enlarge. That greater faith will take place. It says there, which notice that shield of faith by which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one pretty radical. That is, that is inclusive language. That's universal language. You know, we, we um, tell people be careful about universal language. You know, when you say, well, you never listen or you always do that, that's never good. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using, using universal language. He's saying you're able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That when you and I grow in faith, when we trust who God is, then what happens Satan is neutralized. His power is neutralized in our life because what happens is we don't believe him anymore. And notice there's fiery darts. It seeks of flaming arrows, okay? Fiery darts, if you played darts growing up, you might think, well, that's no big deal. You know, those little darts. It's an idea of a flaming arrow coming against you. And then he says, and take the helmet of salvation. You protect your mind, you protect your brain by the helmet of salvation, of realizing that you have been saved, that you are on your way to heaven, that you're gonna go be with the Lord. That's to protect your mind, to protect your thinking, and then the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, it's been well pointed out, this is the only offensive weapon. And if you've ever watched things, you know that a sword is both offensive and defensive right? A sword is used to protect, but also a sword is used, you know, to thrust. And so the, the word of God protects us, but it also sends us on the offensive. It also helps us to, to say, no, no, Satan, that's not what we should be doing. This is what we should be doing. And so w- the, the thing about a sword, though, a sword is extremely dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. You know, it, you... you <laughs> You don't want to go to some sword shop and say, hey, can I just swing this thing around? (laughs) 
see what happens. That's what a lot of people do with the Bible because they haven't spent time in it. And so they don't know how to use it. I guarantee you, God wants to teach you to be an excellent swordsman or swordswoman. God wants you to be that. So spend time in his word and you're gonna start using the word of God, the sword of the spirit, both offensively and defensively in a wonderful way. And then he says, praying always, so it's always a good time to prayer, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. In other words, it's always a good time to pray, pray for others, pray in a spirit-led way, do that. So that brings it all together. And notice then Paul kind of scoots in there the fact that he needs prayer. He says, and for me. You know, sometimes we can think about the Apostle Paul. He's 10 foot tall. He's bulletproof. He's never scared of anything. He's kicking down doors. He's getting people saved. All that kind of stuff. That's not what it is. He says, and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That the Apostle Paul himself could be fearful, that he could be in a situation of saying, I'm tired of being beaten up all the time. Maybe I shouldn't share the gospel. Maybe I shouldn't open my mouth. Maybe I should just keep quiet in this situation. So he's asking for prayer that he would be bold to share the truth. So you and I need that prayer. It says, of which I am an ambassador in chains. Here it is, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So when you're nervous and you're fearful and I don't know if you want to stand, please understand you're in good company. The Apostle Paul felt like that, right? Peter had his issues. Every Christian man and woman in human history have had those issues. They've, They've struggled. But please understand, God has given us his spiritual equipment to enable us to do what he's called us to do. And so if we can be people and the power of God who stand here, think about how awesome it's gonna be to stand before the Lord on that day. To hear him say, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. All right, let's go ahead and move back to the Psalms now. We'll jump into Psalm 109. Let's look at verses one through five here. So it's uh, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Okay. So David's in a difficult situation. People have turned against him. People that he's treated well have betrayed him. They've treated him poorly. And and this is kind of an obvious thing, but we forget it a lot. Being a believer does not exempt you from people treating you like trash. Okay? I probably, if I had written it down, I could have probably said something better than trash. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, the world actually has a target on you because those spiritual forces behind the scenes don't like you because you're serving Christ. You've moved your allegiance from that dissipation of the world that you used to be a part of. Now you're serving Christ. So of course you have a target on your back. That's how it's gonna be. So that David experienced that. Every Christian experiences it to some extent. Now, here's how David responds. I'm gonna go ahead and read verses six through 20. But I I want you to see and understand before we move into it, David is really asking God to take these people down. (laughs) 
David just says, take him out, Lord. And he's going to use some, some very um, strong imagery here. He says, set a wicked man over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin and let his days be few and let another take his office. Now, just real quick, verse eight might be familiar to you. That's actually from Acts, or it was referenced in Acts chapter one. Peter actually quoted this verse when they were looking to replace um, Judas as one of, the, uh, one of the apostles. So interesting, just a little tidbit there. But continuing on, let his children be fatherless and let his wife be a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any favor, I'm sorry, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let, none of, let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them continually be before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth because he did not, sh- did not remember to show mercy but persecuted the poor and needy man that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him and, let, and he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing, as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like a garment which covers him and a belt which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and those who speak evil against my person. <laughs> That's y- that, the, the word I have in my notes is yikes. Okay, that is radical. That, that this is what David is saying. And so, so here's some food for thought. I want to give you three things to think about in relation to these verses. Number one, it's easy to criticize David because whatever happened to him did not happen to us. Right, it's easy to look at David and sitting here and kind of maybe the biggest bummer we've had this morning is, is Rick and Shirley aren't here and we, we don't have the desserts we usually have. And like, you're like, oh, I mean, come on, what's store-bought cinnamon rolls? Really, at this church? Um, so, so it's easy for us when we're not the ones enduring whatever it is to say, well, you're being really overly harsh there. So it's, so it's just different. I'm not saying that David is right about how he's feeling, but this is what he's feeling. And it's, so it's, it's one of those things where we're not in that situation. It didn't happen to us, so it's easy to criticize David. Second thing I want to bring out, though, is that in the midst of pain and betrayal, we may lose perspective. In the midst of pain and betrayal, we may lose perspective, or I could even rephrase that to we would probably lose perspective. When we're hurt, especially by someone that we considered a friend and we feel betrayed, then then we just kind of, we lose it. And that may be what's going on here with David, that he's just kind of lost it because this person he really trusted has turned against him and he is just venting here. That can be what's taking place. And then thirdly, what, what I want to remind you of is that we have been given a better example of how to treat our enemies. Okay, we've been given a better example. Now, if we're, if we're honest, we probably have felt similar to David at situations. We probably felt like this. But what we need to do is, is not say, well, look at this. This is a great way to treat your enemies. I, I love this. I want to do this. Is we want to look to clear didactic passages. That means teaching passages that clearly tell us how am I to treat my enemies? Because the way I want to treat my enemies is I want to take them out. 
But what does the scripture say? Well, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. The Lord Jesus tells us how to treat our enemies. And if you and I have issue with this, well, our issue is with the Lord. <laughs> it's, not, it's not with me. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. I want to look at verses 43 through 48. This is what Jesus says. It's very interesting. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So it was a kind of a common thing that people said, and that's, that's all throughout human history, right? You know, treat people that, you, that treat you well, treat them well, but if they treat you poorly, well, go after them. You know, if, if people say nice things about you, say nice things about them. If they rip you up on the internet, well, I'm gonna rip them up on the internet. Right? That, that's, he said, that's how you do it, but Jesus says, but I say to you, in other words, I don't want to hear that. That's, that's not what I'm going for. That's not how I live. That's not my kingdom. That's not my guidance. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Okay, please understand. When he says love your enemies, love in the Bible is not a feeling. He's not saying work up a feeling for your enemies and just be, oh man, those enemies, what sweethearts they are. He's not saying that. Love in the Bible is doing what's in the best interest of the other person. Doesn't, you, that's why anybody can do it because it doesn't involve emotion. So I'm going to do what's in the best interest of that person, whether I like them or not, whether I have any kind of emotions about them or not. He says, love your enemies, and this is how you love them. Bless them, right? Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his, the, his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That this is how God works. That God just has his benefits on good and evil people. And, and so for us, we see the example of the Lord Jesus when he's on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. So he lived that out. And then we see that as with Stephen, as I mentioned earlier, where as Stephen is, is, is falling to the ground, being pelted with stones, being murdered, he says, don't hold this sin against them. That's the heart. Now, it may be that you and I are such people that in that moment, as we're being killed, we could do that. But you know what? It's interesting. It's interesting. It's different to do that in one moment. It's different to do that every day. To continually every day love your enemies. Because a lot of us may be in that one moment to be able to do the good thing. But what about the daily dying to self, the daily blessing those who curse us, the daily doing good those who hate us, the daily you know, praying for those who spitefully use us and persecute? It's impossible in the power you and I have. The battle belongs to the Lord. It's possible in the spirit he provides. It's possible with, because the Lord Jesus is not gonna give you anything to do that he doesn't give you the power to do. Okay, there's an old saying within Calvary Chapel where God guides, God provides. It's often used in not like not asking for money and, and that's, a, that's a great use of it, but it's also for everything God calls you to. If he guides you through his word to do this, he's gonna provide you with the power to do it. He's going to do that. And he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, and what do, what do you do more than others, do not even the tax collectors do so. In other words, he said, if you just love those who love you, you're not different from anybody else. But if you actually love those who hate you, now you're a reflection, you're salt and light. 
you're doing what I called you to do. And then he says, therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That word perfect is, is teleos. It means to be, come at to a, like that, that end, that desired end, to be mature, to be complete. So the idea is, if you and I become people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the gifting of the Holy Spirit, who truly begin to love our enemies, then we're like really on our way to being that completed thing that God wants us to be. That, that, that is something special. That is something different. All right, one more place about these enemies. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, near the end of your Bibles. Let's see if I can find it. 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 18 through 25. Okay, so it's about loving your enemies. It's about suffering for the cause of Christ. So 1 Peter 2, verse 18. There we go. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief. Here it is, suffering wrongfully. Suffering wrongfully, that, that, that that's going to be a part of our, our attitude, or sorry, our part and parcel as Christians. We're going to suffer wrongfully, okay, but we're to endure it gently. We're to endure it patiently. Notice, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, that's a radical, when you do good and you still suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. In other words, God is the one who's going to commend you. God is going to commend you. Here it is. For, and this is, this, there's so much here, and, I, and um, I can't wait to teach through. I'm going to hopefully teach through First and Second Peter after Psalms. But this is what he says. For to this you were called. You and I are called to suffering. You, are call, you and I are called to do good in the midst of the evil around us. That's what we're called to. He says, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, might, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Radical. I would encourage you to, to make a mark of this passage in your Bible and to come back to it. I was taught this passage really early in my Christian life, and it's, it still has that radical element to me that we're called to suffering, that Christ left us that example, that we are to actually endure it patiently because that brings us a commendation before God and it makes us a salt and light in this world. Amazing, amazing things. All right, let's, let's move back to the Psalms and we've got to pick up the pace. But let's look at verses 21 through 31 here in Psalm 109. And what we have here in this section is David is going to get his focus off of his betrayers and he's going to get his focus back on the Lord and David's going to ask for mercy. So starting in verse 21, he says, But you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake because your mercy is good, deliver me. 
For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. And so, David gets, again, he gets his focus off of his betrayer and onto the Lord. He asks for mercy. And so here's, here's the principle here for us. Instead of fixating on our enemies, instead of fixating on our enemies, what we should do is get our focus back on God. It's really, it's simple. Let's get our eyes off of our enemies and, and, and on top of what God should do to them and how he should, you know, kind of take care of this and why hasn't he done something yet and all that. Instead, let's get our focus back on the Lord. Let's spend our time with the Lord. And then what's going to happen as we spend that time with the Lord, we're going to be like David and realize our own weakness, our own smallness, our own, we don't know what's going to happen. Think about the Apostle Paul when he was Saul. Think about when he was persecuting the early church and how many of those first Christians do you think prayed, God, would you just take him out? Would you just kill him? Would you just wipe him out? Why are you waiting so long? Can't you see what a havoc he's making of the church? Not knowing that God was gonna take this man and he was gonna make him into the greatest Christian of all time. So for you and I, let's get our eyes off of our enemies Let's get our eyes back on the Lord, understand our own weakness, our own need for mercy, and let's, let's obey what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 7, where he said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If you want to focus on your enemies, focus on them so you can do good to them, so you can bless them, so you can pray for them. And so if you and I are in a place where we can't look at our enemies without praying for them, without doing good for them, without blessing them, then just get your eyes completely off them. Get your eyes on the Lord, and then the Lord will soften your heart, and then eventually you can come to that place where you can bless them, where you can pray for them. And so the Lord can do that. All right, Psalm 110, Psalm of David. It's a short one here. What's so interesting about this short little seven-verse chapter in the Old Testament is that this is the most, that the New Testament writers refer to this little chapter more than to any other Old Testament chapter in all the Bible. This Psalm 110 is the most referred to Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. It's an amazing thing. And so we're just going to kind of skim across the surface. First thing we're going to see here in verse 1 is that Jesus is king. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the most important thing that I want to get from this first line there, the Lord said to my Lord, is that there are two words, two Hebrew words used here that both refer to God. Okay, the first Hebrew word, if you'll see there, it may be in all caps in your Bible. That's, that's a signal to us that it's a covenant name of God, of Yahweh. And the second word, Lord, there is actually the Hebrew word Adonai. So, the Yahweh said to my Adonai. It's very, very interesting. So what we have here is God the Father, Yahweh, speaking to God the Son, Adonai. That's what's happening. Now, I'm not just making this up. The Lord Jesus interprets this verse himself. So would you turn to Matthew chapter 22? 
Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. Let's look at verses 41 through 46. As you're turning there, okay, give you a little context. Uh, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, they were looking for a Messiah from the line of David. Okay, and so they were thinking about him as a descendant of David. And they were correct. He was going to be a descendant of David. But they were only thinking about him in purely human terms, that he was a human from the descendant of David. But they weren't understanding that he was going to both be fully man and fully God. And so this is what Jesus is going to bring out here. Here, Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Then while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Okay, so these are the religious leaders. By and large, they were um, antithetical to Jesus. And so he asked them a question. Who do you think, uh, so what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Okay, so the Christ, the Messiah. And they said to him, the son of David. So they're only thinking he's gonna be a human descendant of David. And so here Jesus gives them a puzzler. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit, so in other words, David inspired by the Holy Spirit, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? <laughs> and then Jesus dropped the mic. And then it said, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare question him anymore. See, this is what often happens to us. Our, our view is too small. Our vision is too small. Our God is too small. We put him in our pocket so we can watch whatever we want to watch and do whatever we want to do and say whatever we want to say, and then times get hard, and we try to get him out of our, our pocket. And, hey, would you do this thing for me, and let me put you back in my pocket again. And the, the, the Lord's always out of pocket. You, you can't put the Lord in your pocket. And so he's saying to them, yes, the Messiah is a descendant of David, but he's not only a descendant of David because he's the Lord of David. Well, how does that work? He's fully man, he's fully God. So Psalm 110 is an incredibly important psalm when it comes to understanding the deity of Christ, the eternality of Christ. So, so amazing thing. And, and one thing I, I want to bring out here, and it's a hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics is the, the art, and, art and science of Bible interpretation. Okay, that, that this, the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. The Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. So you're reading Psalm 110 and you see in your Bible, it's referencing Matthew 22. Huh, well, I'm trying to figure out Psalm 110. Let me turn to Matthew 22 and see what it says. And now all of a sudden it starts making sense to you. And so I'd encourage you to, to, to be exhorted to understand that. All right, let's go ahead and go back to Psalm 110. Verse one says, the Lord said to my Lord, the Yahweh said to my Adonai, Okay, so this is Yahweh speaking. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So sit at my right hand. This is a place of honor and authority. I just want to give you three verses from the New Testament that, that prove to us that this has been fulfilled. That Jesus Christ right now as we sit here is seated at the right hand of the Father. First one's Ephesians 1.20. It says, God the Father, so it's he, God the Father, raised him, Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians 1.20. Next is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
So Hebrews 12, 2, and now 1 Peter 3, verse 22, tells us that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. It is undeniable that the New Testament teaches that Psalm 110 is a reference to Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that Yahweh is God the Father, Adonai is the Lord Jesus, and the Father is going to sit him at his right hand. He said he was going to do it, and he's done it. Now notice why he's sitting there, the end of verse one of Psalm 110, till I make your enemies your footstool. And so, you know, this, I have to mention it when I was, when my kids were little, you know, you're playing around with them on the floor. I used to put my foot on my little kid and say, till I make your enemies your footstool. I used to do that to my children. Hopefully they don't remember it, but now they do. (laughs) Now, the idea was taken from in the ancient world when you would defeat an enemy, you would bring them before you and you would put your foot on their neck to show that you had rule over them, that you had authority over them, that you had defeated them. That's the big idea. God the Father is gonna arrange for all things to be put under submission to the Lord Jesus. Every single thing is gonna be put under his submission. Now here's the deal. Believers will be submitted to him, but believers are those who willingly submit. We submit to him, we bow at his feet, and so we're not his enemies anymore. We be, we've, we're in the kingdom of darkness, we've been conveyed into this, the kingdom of the son of his love, and so we're not his enemies, so we're willingly submitted, so because we're willingly submitted, he can give us power and authority in this coming kingdom. But unbelievers, they will submit unwillingly. They, because they won't submit, then they will be made to submit. Now, because I've gone long in some areas, I'm just gonna have to give you these references. We can't turn to them. One of them, Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two, I believe one of the most encouraging chapters in all of the Bible to remind us that yes, all things will be put under Jesus's authority. Then next, the next reference, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, as Jesus returns to take his rightful place, as he defeats the Antichrist and the armies marshaled against him. And then the next reference is Revelation chapter 20, verses four through six, where all believers will rule and reign with Christ during the millennial kingdom. So those are some encouraging things. The, Satan wants to discourage you. I would, I would ask you to take some time this week. Read these verses. Pray through these verses. Encourage your heart. You know, have that breastplate of righteousness, that, that, sh- that helmet of salvation, that shield of faith. I would encourage you to get into and allow the word to heal you as you move forward this week. All right, let's move on in Psalm 110 to verse 2. It says, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so the idea here is that this world system is hostile to the triune God. It lies under the sway of the evil one, but the day is coming when the Lord Jesus will rule all the earth. And, but I love how it says, it says, rule in the midst of your enemies. So this world is hostile to Christ, but the day is coming when he's gonna clean house and rule here. And the image that came to my mind is in, you know, in, in um, you know, times of, of nights that when a king would take an enemy's castle and then take residence in his enemy's castle. He would kick the enemy out and he would say, this is my castle now. And that's what the Lord Jesus is gonna do. Now, the little bit different thing is the Lord Jesus owns this world anyway. He made this world, it's rightfully his, but it's being occupied by his enemy, but the day is coming where he's gonna kick that enemy out and he's gonna take over. Verse three says, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. So all believers will become Tennessee fans. No, just kidding, just kidding, Tennessee volunteers. Come on, it's football season. Yeah, the idea here, that word behind volunteers in the Hebrew, it speaks of a free will offering. 
So there were different offerings in the Old Testament under the Levitical system that were mandatory, and there were other offerings that you could either give or not give. And the idea for us as believers is that we're free will offerings, that we've chosen to give ourselves over to the Lord. And so it's a beautiful thing that we're going to rule and reign with Christ as volunteers. And the, the cross reference I would give you is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, that, that, it's, that we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, which is holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, or some translations say a reasonable act of worship. I know I'm kind of reverting to my old talking fast, but I need to get you guys out of here. Um, so Jesus is priest next as we see verse four. So verses one through three, Jesus is king. And then now we move into Jesus is priest, verse four. Oh, I I forgot to say the rest of verse three, sorry. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. And then here it is, priest, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so it's interesting, this phrase, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, it's an affirmation in the most definite way possible, God will not change his mind. So Jesus is always a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, who in the world is Melchizedek? Let me give you another reference to read on your own. Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Genesis 14, 18 through 20, Melchizedek meets up with Abraham. Abraham uh, gives an offering to him. It's a really, really interesting thing. You kind of need to do some study on your own. But I want to give you another reference that explains it all, and that's Hebrews chapter 7. If you'll read Genesis 4, 18 through 20, and then let Hebrews 7 interpret it for you, it'll make a whole lot of sense. It'll show you that you can understand the Bible for yourself. And here's the point. The priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. That's the big point. Okay, and and here's the deal. Because the the priesthood of Melchizedek, of which Jesus is, is the key, it's one sacrifice that takes away sins forever, where the Levitical priesthood was continual sacrifices that only cover sin. So the, the big idea is that we have a priest in Jesus Christ, our great high priest, talks about that all throughout Hebrews, that has by one sacrifice taken away sins forever. And we can now celebrate that. We're not under a system where we have to continually offer sacrifices, offer sacrifices that can never take away sin, but only cover them. All right, verses five through seven, we've made it. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. It's radical. It's like, wow, that's kind of a dark ending (laughs) to this. But it's really a prophecy of Revelation 19, the battle of Armageddon. So so this this is the truth. This is the reality that every person on planet earth belongs to God. And that every person who's ever lived belongs to God. And every person who's ever lived apart from Jesus Christ is a sinner. And, and so that you can either submit to Christ willingly and meet him as your savior, or you can refuse to submit to Christ and meet him as your judge. The, the, choice, is, is the choice is clear. So everyone who submits to him and says, I need salvation, he freely forgives. But everyone who goes against him, the only ending is destruction. There, there's no other ending. This, this is a true either or. Jesus says you're either for me or you're against me. It's either heaven or it's hell. It's either forgiveness or judgment. There's not all these variations. 
There's not all these gradations. These are the two choices. But the, the, what we want to take away from verses 5 and 7 is that the Lord Jesus will win in the end. He's going to win. So I'm going to leave you with these, as we conclude, these three takeaways. Number one, no matter what those around you are doing, you can choose to worship God. You can choose it. I can choose it. You can be a Joshua. Joshua was a person just like you and I. Probably better at fighting. (laughs) But he was like us from the standpoint of he needed the Lord's help. He needed the Lord's power. So we can't control those around us. We can't turn this nation in this way or that way. But we can do is say, I'm going to choose to stand in the Lord. That leads me to the second thing I want to remind you of. That this life is a battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. This life is a battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And so fight in his strength. Fight in his armor. Fight in the equipment he gives. Fight in the power that he is. He has promised to you and I that out of our innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. Say, say, Lord, would you, would you by your Holy Spirit pour out of me? Let me refresh those around me. Let me be a blessing to those. Lord, break me and break me open so that other people might, it's probably the Lord calling, it's time to be done. Verse three, or verse three, final third, I can be shaken. Just stand, just stand. Third thing, as dark, a thing, as dark as things may seem, the Lord Jesus Christ will rule on planet earth. He's gonna rule and reign and all will end well for believers. Everything will be put under his feet. We're gonna have that ending that we're hoping for. He is going to do it. So trust in him today. Let's pray.